and welcome to Inside Infrastructure, an inside look at the decisions and decision makers behind Australia's city shaping infrastructure. I'm Adrian Dwyer, Chief Executive of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia. Recently, Ilya and I sat down with Mike Murdoch AO. Mike will be well known to most people in the Australian infrastructure sector, having spent over 30 years in senior Australian public service roles, including as a Secretary of the Department of Transport and Infrastructure and Secretary of the Department of Communications. Mike recently left the Australian Public Service and now holds a number of non-exec and advisory positions. It was a great chat, so here it is. Mike Murdoch, welcome to Inside Infrastructure. Thank you. We, uh, we were sort of looking back over your career as we were thinking about um, how we might kick off the questions for you. And there's a number of senior roles, very senior roles, inside and outside government, a long career in Canberra. I thought it might be best to, I guess, to let you put that in your own words and, and talk us through the last... Um, three decades or so of, of working life. Well, thank you. And uh, look, at, I've been enormously fortunate. I've had, uh, I had a 32, nearly 33 years with the Australian government um, through probably one of the most uh, interesting periods of change and reform that has taken place in transport and infrastructure, uh, probably from, from most of the last century or so. Period of not just technological change, but market huge market structure change and, and quite a lot of uh, governance and ownership change, which has fundamentally uh, resulted in a, in a very different transport infrastructure sector to the one that I started working on. Um, when I joined the, the then Department of Transport and Communications in the 1980s, uh, for a start, the Commonwealth Government ran directly ran somewhere around a quarter to a third of Australia's public infrastructure. Uh, and the states ran probably, again, another at least another half of the public infrastructure in the country, um, there wasn't a concept of privately run infrastructure uh, in place, apart from uh, some bus operators and one airline um, that was operating in, com- you know, in a commercial market. Um, and the department I joined in the 1980s um, owned 700 airports, uh, a shipping line, two, air- two airlines, a small company called Telecom, which is now Telstra, the Australian, everything from the way you mailed a letter to the phone call you made, the flights you caught, uh, not that many Australians flew in the 1980s really, um, to the way your boxes moved overseas was very much influenced by government. Mm. And and that was really driven by two things. One is uh, the access to capital. Transport infrastructure is a big capital intensive business. And right through to the 1970s and 80s, access to capital was a big issue for the, the sector and governments around the world tended to run a lot of uh, operations in both transport and infrastructure. What I've seen in the course of my career is a huge shift um, and the big shift has been access to capital markets. Mm. Private investment has come into infrastructure and transport in a way that we wouldn't have imagined over 30 years ago. We always thought there would be scenarios where the private sector could run infrastructure and transport operations more efficiently. What we what we hadn't dreamt of was that infrastructure could be fun, financed uh, by the private sector, uh, given its its large capital nature and its reliance on often you know uh, thin revenue streams at times. You joined as a grad to the department, is that right? Yeah, I joined as a graduate in 1987. Um, and the first role I had in 1988 was to work on a what was then a secret project called the Third Runway at Sydney Airport uh, in a small task force. Um, and the end result of that was a highly contentious political process 
to actually build a parallel runway at Sydney Airport, which led to the resignation of the then Aviation Minister um, because it, the Labor Party policy at that time had been no expansion of Sydney, Kingswood, Smith. Um, and we started to buy land at a little place called Badgeries Creek um, in the expectation that one day in the 2050s or 60s, Sydney would need a second airport. Um, and the reason that the Commonwealth owned 700 airports, including Sydney Airport, was that the private sector wasn't the private sector just didn't have the access to capital, and the aviation industry didn't operate in a fully commercial market. You've got to remember at that time there were there were two airlines, uh, two airline policy, which uh, ANSET and that's those those Australian airlines. They were and the, the the market was regulated not so much to protect the government owned airline, but to protect the private sector airline and to enable it to be able to access capital and also to be able to regulate the growth of the sector in a way that would make them sustainable. And there was Australia had one international airline, Qantas, uh, and, and probably only a handful of international airlines flew to Australia in those days. So for me, the airport's business has been to take that from a time, and I can remember going to and being involved in conversations in the, in the 80s and 90s where the department was looking for relatively small amounts of money to expand Sydney Airport. Little things like, um, we, I remember going to a cabinet meeting once, we were debating the cost of a door in the customs hall um, where we were actually told to go away and, and not to do it because it was going to cost tens of thousands of dollars. Um, to and in that, But it would have made a difference to actually speed up passenger flow. And so government was constrained. And because everything, you know, those days, this was before a lot of the micro-reform agenda, we were very much tied to government expenditure and budgets, and it was hard to find money for infrastructure. At the same time, uh, what you had was a transport sector that was really run by the operators. There was no concept, really, of the customer. Um, and it was a really hard struggle. And, and the big change I've seen through my experience, and I spent probably the first 10 at least 10 to 12 years of my career with the Commonwealth in the aviation and airports areas, um, was the big shift was firstly getting rid of the two airlines policy and opening up the markets. Secondly, the privatisation of the airports, which came in the 90s. And most importantly, the national competition policy and also the, the drive to competition in the industry, which has now resulted in setting aside the COVID problems, um, one of the most liberal aviation markets in the world. Um, and you've got to remember, when I started in the department, we had a small team of people whose job was to make sure that the airlines didn't do any discounting. They couldn't compete. Uh, there was a team of people which had to make sure that the food on each airline domestically was the same size and quality. So no airline had a, could get a competitive advantage over the other one. And you go to today where in transport sector, we try and promote competition. We look for new ideas. Can you imagine a digital age saying to a lot of the digital companies, uh, well, actually, we're going to sit down and make sure that your product is so so uh, much like your competitor and the government is going to have to approve every change you want to make to your product in the interest of making sure that your industry is viable. Um, that just wouldn't work today. And so that's the, really the biggest change I've seen as we, as we took the aviation sector from a heavily regulated heavily government-dependent sector into a fully uh, private entity that is actually now raising capital globally. And as I said, setting aside the shock of COVID, um, remain we have still one of the most efficient airline sectors in the world because of the, the way in which Australia opened up its markets and ensured 
that things like the airport privatisation actually enabled private investment to drive growth in a way that in government we were actually holding back growth. Did aviation account for probably the largest proportion of Was that just at the start of your career in, in government or, or throughout aviation was the dominant area that you worked on? It's the dominant area. It's where I spent most of my early career and then kept coming back to it. Um, so Western Sydney Airport must have been a, a, a pretty momentous change for you, looking back through the things that you had, you had contributed to? Yeah, look, it's it's the project of which in many ways I'm most proud of because we we changed the argument. We we In those days when I first started working on it, as I said, when I remember going out and trying to buy blocks of land off people in the 1980s and 90s um, for an airport. And we didn't know what we needed the airport for, really, because we all thought the Sydney airport would become capped out. And it has. It has capacity restrictions. But we really didn't have a development idea of what we were going to try and do. Probably the most the thing I'm most proud of is the work we did uh, in the Joint Aeronautic Aviation Study, which was done jointly between the Commonwealth and the state um, between 2010 and 2012, which actually laid out the argument that we weren't actually building an airport for its own sake, although Sydney did need a second airport, a second major airport. What we were really driving was a regional development strategy, which was fundamentally changing the shape of Sydney. Um, we looked at it from the perspective of there are or will be by the middle of the century um, 4 million people uh, west of Parramatta, um, Australia's third largest economy in its own right, um, and we had to provide the infrastructure because the one thing that stood out in a lot of my early career was governments lagged very badly on infrastructure provision, largely because of access to, to funding, um, and government just couldn't find the funding to actually put into infrastructure, and you can understand why. You only have to see today the first priority of governments is health and education and all and defence and all of those other areas. So transport and infrastructure were ranking low and always had been. And the linkage between investing in transport and infrastructure and national productivity weren't as well understood when I started my career. It's an interesting thing there, particularly with the airport, a couple of things that you've mentioned there, because the airport is being built sort of... Um, as a very vision, like you said, it's it's going to supposed to transform the region, and it's being built to be from almost day one a, a, a visionary kind of um, a, a, a very substantial piece of infrastructure. There's arguments that are made separately that they you know should have started effectively with a, with a shed and a runway, just gotten going, and then started collecting revenue and expanded over time. Can you comment on those two 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 approaches and and how the government landed on on where they did? Yeah, look, and both are valid approaches and. That was one of the important considerations. What were we building? If we were building an airport to grow with aviation demand, then you would start with a much more basic structure. And that was the plan in the 1990s uh, when, when the Badgeries project was first started and then, and then stopped. Um, there was going to be a very modest runway with effectively a, almost no, uh, it wasn't even a tin shed really. What's now important though is that we're actually driving an investment strategy which has already seen a remarkable turnaround in Western Sydney. The reality is the the airport is coming is driving demand and and is staying ahead of population growth and is actually changing one of the major issues for Sydney that we've now created a city that has some of the longest commute times on public transport in the world. It's unsustainable. We've got to get jobs to the west and the big shift in the last decade is actually to start to see infrastructure like the airport, like the rail lines, like the, the land development, actually driving with having an objective of getting jobs close to people. That's a really fundamental shift. Well, when you, when you said that the joint aviation study was, 
was interesting is because it 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 recharacterized it not as Sydney's second airport but Western Sydney's first airport which is I know it seems like a, a, a nuance different but it dramatically changed the argument and in my view it that it, it, there was then followed that was a, a business and unions joint campaign um, sort of in step with with ministers that wanted to to do the project uh, alongside the Daily Telegraph. And it's a pretty formidable force of unions business and the Daily Telegraph saying this needs to be done. Absolutely, because the debate shifted um, from being one about how do you add runways to an aviation system, which is important and necessary given the importance of aviation to the country, to actually about addressing some really big social and economic problems for Sydney and the nation. You can't continue to have people having an average commute of 40 to 45 minutes to an hour each way, and you can't have the jobs deficit in an area that has 4 million people that we've created. Um, If you don't start to turn that around, Forget about the aviation pressures if you don't have a second airport. Think about the community and economic impacts and particularly the social impacts of having a large number of people dislocated from work. And that's the danger of where we were heading and will continue to head if we don't build infrastructure into these areas where we're putting housing and enable jobs to connect with where people live. And COVID has really shown the importance of those local jobs and that and how, how you can become over-reliant on uh, travel when you have restrictions like COVID. Um, Mike, I just want to go back briefly to something you mentioned earlier on. You said, um, I think I got your phrase right, you said that um, we couldn't have conceived of the private sector being able to provide the capital required to d- deliver the sorts of infrastructure you're talking about. But but it also strikes me that at the time that you were doing these reforms, someone did conceive that. You know, there, there was someone in your department or elsewhere or Fred Hilmer or others that said, actually, there is a different version of the future. I don't know t- to what extent you could comment on that that process of someone taking it from this intensely publicly run system to something which is now you know, you know, regulated to some extent by the public sector, but, but certainly not run by the public sector. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We couldn't conceive it at the time because we hadn't done it. Um, but there were people who did and conceive it. There were some, I mean, at the time... Uh, Early in my career, uh, my portfolio was headed by some absolutely brilliant strategic thinkers uh, who I was really fortunate enough to to see and work with and learn a lot from. Um, People people that were running the the portfolio in those days of the 1990s who drove the micro-reform agenda, and it was the Graham Evans who who was the secretary at the time and at the time we in the 80s and 90s, um, people like Roger Beale, uh, people people like of that quality of senior bureaucrats who actually seized the need for both structural reform and also changing the focus from an engineering-driven transport operations perspective to a customer competition perspective to drive economic growth and drive jobs. And that was a fundamental shift. And and really, ministers who who really made the difference in those days were people, you know, the first minister of my department that I joined was Gareth Evans. Um, And we had a succession of ministers like Gareth Evans, Kim Beasley, uh, obviously, you know, prime ministers like uh, Hawke and Keating, who, who really championed the need, John Button, people who actually saw a, a bigger vision that Australia had to change, that markets were going to provide the best opportunities, both for investment, but most importantly for jobs and good quality jobs, uh, and that we couldn't continue in the in the heavily regulated systems that we had dependent on government funding. They, we just couldn't, we weren't going to be able to do it. And 
and another example is is in an area like uh, again rail. Um, the, coming back to your other question earlier, what's what's the other big change I've seen? Not only the aviation industry, but rail. I can remember in the nineteen eighties uh, and nineteen nineties, the conversation in Australia was rail was dead. That essentially, apart from some suburban networks bringing people into CBDs, which were chronically underfunded that the rail system was a 19th century anachronism, that we effectively would spend most of the 20th century, the bulk of the rest of the 20th century and the 21st century ripping up rail lines and basically continuing an expansion of motorways and, and private markets in motor vehicles. The big shift has now seen both rail freight, which, which obviously is always competitive over long distances, but watch the change as we've started to get big cities. Um, the other thing was that we all kept talking to ourselves about ourselves as a country that which is of small cities or a small population uh, and I've made the point publicly you've got to remember that Sydney Melbourne and Brisbane uh, are not uh, small cities by global standards and Sydney and Melbourne in particular so the big shift that all, I've also seen in my career as well as opening up these transport modes to greater investment and in markets is this fundamental shift around city shaping and rail the revitalization of rail now there's a lot to go but essentially, our cities wouldn't function uh, if we had not changed our thinking on rail. Uh, and that's probably the other area I'd, I'd say through the course of my career has been a fundamental shift. What is it that the federal, um, it, it probably moves us on to the next the next sort of uh, area of questioning that we, we were hoping to pick your brain about, which is the federal government's evolving role in, in infrastructure. Um, what what well we'll get to how it's changed in a bit but but what is it that you think the federal government has done to to encourage rail over that over those 30 years um you know you've described what they're doing what what's happened in the cities how is the federal how has the commonwealth been been involved in that well again over the last 30 years um the commonwealth owned uh, a railway system uh in the 1980s the whitlam government bought uh, the then South Australian and Tasmanian rail systems, and also in the 1980s started to build what was called uh, a National Rail Freight Network. Um, but because that was an area that was there was a failure, the national rail market was was not working, and there was chronic underinvestment. The Commonwealth stepped in uh, through National Rail, but it didn't really work um, either as a business. And essentially, the the shift was to try and take it out of a government-owned railway system, which was chronically uh, inefficient and, and, and really just wasn't investing and running well and wasn't serving the market to a system that actually where the Commonwealth has moved to being a track owner and providing the underlying infrastructure through Australian Rail Track Corporation. And actually that package of actually bringing all of the mainland uh, standard gauge track, which started in the 1990s and you know we completed when we did the, the final deal with Queensland uh, only a couple of years, a few years ago, which means that for the first time in the country's history, we have a single standard gauge rail line operated by a single operator. And now we've also got a single national rail law, which we put in place, is actually a big step. Uh, I always say to people, you've got to remember that as uh, in 2000 or 2001, someone running a train between uh, Sydney and Perth uh, operated under, I think it was 48 separate pieces of legislation uh, eight or nine different communication systems and that the first time a train could run between Melbourne and Adelaide without changing bogies um, was, was uh, uh, 1998, 1999. So, you know, not that long ago um, when we standardised the rail line between Melbourne and Adelaide. Um, so rail 
And if you think about that as one of the Federation's key objectives way back in the 1890s was to get the rail system to align, it took us a century to get to it to that situation. And so the federal government, the way coming back to your question, where's the federal government role? Some of it is direct investment, uh, such as what they're doing, what we're doing through ARTC. Some of it is creating the right structures for people to invest in. So separating out the track from the operators has allowed private sector investment in above rail operators, which has brought efficiency and competition. And thirdly, it sets the market competition rules. Through, through the ACCC, it, it enables track access regimes to be, to be put in place. So those three things is where the, where the Commonwealth government has proven to be very successful. Sometimes it's got to put its own money in, but just as often it's about how its GBEs and its structure works, on, particularly on the infrastructure side. And thirdly, about the regulatory structures. And right across the transport modes, people often talk about the investment, but often the regulatory reform and creating the right regulatory structures with incentives for investment. I mean, selling the airports wasn't the radical reform. The big reform that ensured that our airports have been as successful as they are, albeit in difficult times at the moment, was actually the Airports Act and the regulatory regime, which created a pricing regime, which gave them incentives to invest and an incentive to negotiate commercial prices with the airlines and their customers. That regulatory reform is the critical thing. Can you explain those in a, in a coming coming from a different angle? What would you say is the biggest role, is the most important role today, given that, you know, there's plenty of capital everywhere, um, the states have taken most of, the states are responsible for most infrastructure ownership or the private sector is. What, what would you say is the federal, is the Commonwealth's most important role today and going forward in, um, in enabling uh, better infrastructure delivery and operation and access in Australia? Well, I think it's, it's not too different to what was done previously. Firstly, there does need to be Commonwealth investment. You can't shy away from that. There are projects that Okay. It's just not going to work for the private sector. And things like rail track are, are one of those areas. The returns just aren't there. Um, Do you think that's the case? Because there's a striking difference with, you know, you spoke about the airports under private ownership and the ARTC, which is notionally commercial, um, but, but, but obviously under public ownership. Do you think it's just the case that we're not at that point on the maturity curve where it could be a, a, a privately owned and, and financed operation? I think that's right, simply because the above rail operators uh, aren't as viable as they need to be to create a competitive market, um, to provide the revenue streams you need, to provide the returns you need. Yeah. The, the reality is where rail uh, is not at the stage, when, when we sold the airports, they were in reasonable capital condition uh, and the new owners were able to invest on top of it because they were starting from a reasonable capital base. The rail sector is still trying to recover effectively 40 or 50 years of underinvestment. Um, and so that takes time. And the rates of return okay. available to the ARTC are still lower than what a private sector investor, albeit today, private sector return seek, is seeking lower returns than what we would imagine even a short time ago. The reality is sectors like rail uh, do still struggle to provide that level. There will come a point at which that is a viable option, provided you get the regulatory regime right, Often the big reforms are the regulatory structures and pricing. It's not necessarily the, the investment, although getting the investment, as, as we've discussed a number of times, getting the investment in the right places uh, in a timely way matters uh, and to the right quality. But pricing is matters, and, and you can see that in telecommunications, you can see it in rail, you can see it in energy. 
that you've got to get the infrastructure pricing and regulatory structures right, and then you'll get the private investment taking place. Is there is there um, th- that level of investment that the Commonwealth puts into uh, into infrastructure? That has that is a relatively recent phenomenon um, that you know, I think started probably post GFC. That just a, a, a mountain, particularly urban rail. Particularly, yeah, particularly urban rail. Do, do you um, do you think that that's uh, is it appropriate for the Commonwealth to be to be uh, taking over such a large role of, of investment in what are traditionally state assets, or is there something else that needs to be addressed in terms of because ultimately the Commonwealth has a lot of money and the states don't? Is is that what needs to be addressed to resolve that going forward? Yeah, look, I think there has been a, there's there's been a big lift, and and there's no doubt about it that. You know, people ask the question, did we waste the last boom um, in terms of infrastructure? Short answer is partly, only partly. We did see a big lift in national infrastructure investment, uh, particularly from uh, the mid-2000s onwards. Um, we saw the big projects. I can remember that the National Highway Program, before we did, before we changed road funding arrangements in 2004-05 to what became Auslink and is what is now uh, the, the government's program, um, the National Highway Program had about $800 million a year to spend across the country. It made it almost impossible to do any project. When you've got to divide $800 million among six states and two territories across a continent, you've got absolutely no chance of doing any major project. And basically, um, that's why we had a uh, a 40-year vision for the Pacific Highway. A, it took us... Uh, 40 years to duplicate the Hume Highway because we were doing it in small pieces um, and we didn't, we just didn't have the bulk. That's where the big changes that started with Auslink in 2004 and really accelerated with nation building with Anthony Albanese in office was starting to apply large amounts of Commonwealth money. That's how you leverage then investment from the states and also uh, how you actually redesign projects to try and get public private sector money in through public private partnerships. Because you've got to remember before 2000, there were very few successful examples of PPPs um, apart from a couple of road projects. Um, So there's been a massive shift and coming back to your question, that Commonwealth does need to invest um, and needs to invest in large amounts. It's basically because of its access to capital is, is cheaper than what the states can do. But also, we can actually make some national priority decisions and actually in, get bulk projects together. I've never been a fan of Commonwealth state splits, and I, I remember debating over the course of my career with colleagues where are the boundaries between the Commonwealth and the state. I always took the view: who cares who pays the most? Let's get the right project done. And the conversations we had when we first started the Pacific Highway program uh, in the 1990s, I remember the conversations then with my Treasury and Finance colleagues who said, well, it's a state road. It was not a national highway. We should only contribute, you know, a very small percentage. We were losing, um, you know, thousands of people a year on the Pacific Highway. How does anyone in public policy have a debate around who's, who should pay a share of the road funding when you're killing literally uh, 30 or 40 people a week on a road? I'm only playing devil's advocate, but there might be a view that there's a moral hazard there um, in that the states won't address their own funding deficiencies if the Commonwealth keeps giving out money uh, at will. And I guess looking at that from the other side, should the, should there be conditions attached 
to any of these grants from the Commonwealth? Should there be some kind of reform requirement or should it, or do you think the Commonwealth should give the money and let the states uh, deal with their own reforms as they, as they can? No, look, starting with the second part of that, firstly, I, I, I think that, and it's always been the case, the Commonwealth has put conditions on its funding. Um, sometimes not sensible, but most times because we're trying to, we were trying to drive a national outcome. For instance, uh, a lot of the money that went into urban rail over the last decade was conditioned on single national regulators, um, single pieces of national regulatory reform, uh, as well as improvements to, to, uh, transit outcomes. Um, so there, there will always be conditions, and that's important because a national government working with the states, and, and look, a lot of the expertise sits with the states. You know, I've, I never took the view that the Commonwealth should come in over the top of them. You've got to work with states. And on the whole, one of the things I was really most proud of in my time as Transport Secretary was we had a really effective COAG senior officials team that actually worked together. And that, I was really fortunate. I had people like Tim Reardon, Neil Scales, who are currently in senior roles still, Jim Betts, who's still in a senior role. So, we worked together over the, you know, a decade ago to pull a lot of this stuff together and it was a wonderful environment to do it. But the Commonwealth had the money and they had the ideas and we worked together well. Coming back to your first question around the moral hazard, look, it's the same taxpayer. It's the same nation. Um, as we've seen through COVID, the Australian community got over state boundaries a long time ago. Um, you know, northern New South Wales operates as part of the southeast Queensland economy, and we should treat this as a national economy. Um, and essentially, my view has always been: who is the who is the best place to fund, and who is best place to deliver? Is the question not what is a share of funding? Um, because I think that's the more important thing. I'd test some context to add to Ilya's question, and I, I'm going to answer Ilya's question, which is: yes, the Commonwealth's an important catalytic investor, but the Commonwealth's infrastructure program is, um, depending on which figures you take, something like $100 billion over 10, year, 10 years, so $10 billion a year. New South Wales alone is spending something like $107 billion over four years. The, the Commonwealth is still, a, a, a and, and then plus you have New South Wales, sorry, Victoria and Queensland and, and, and other substantial investment as well. So it's, the Commonwealth is still a minority funder of national infrastructure. It is, and, and, and that's the important thing to remember, that uh, the debate over splits on projects was, was nonsensical because the Commonwealth's not a big spender, and but where the Commonwealth is important is it stands behind the states in terms of their borrowings and also their other revenue streams. That's the important part from a national sovereignty perspective and investment, that the states can leverage their balance sheets, albeit you don't want to create the moral hazards of states over-borrowing, and we've seen that in the past with states like Victoria and South Australia. But ultimately, the Commonwealth takes responsibility for the national economic picture. And uh, while it might not ex explicitly fund a project, it does stand behind the jurisdictions. Um, and so the, the Commonwealth has to be involved in the planning sense from that, from that perspective. Those conditions that are placed um, on the, 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 the dollars that are given out by the by the Commonwealth to the jurisdictions, do, do, I accept that some of them have um, at least driven the, the thrust of reforms that are given as a quid pro quo, but to, to what extent do you think they've been effective, perhaps outside of the national competition policy payments piece, the, but the more grant-based conditions, to what extent are they effective? Oh, look, it varies. I think some of them are really meeting Commonwealth accountability requirements around acquittal of the monies and the like. Um, but some of them, uh, for instance, you know, we wouldn't have got, uh, as I said, we wouldn't have got national heavy vehicle or rail regulation reform on a national basis without it being tied to money. 
uh, and, and national maritime regulatory reform, um, they were hard conversations. And I, I don't doubt that the, the states wouldn't have got those or national competition changes in the absence of Commonwealth tying money to, to those conditions. Um, the states have a much harder job than the Commonwealth because they're at the interface. They're talking to the unions, they're talking to the employees, a lot of these state enterprises that were that were corporatised and privatised. So they're at the cutting edge and it's really hard conversation for them politically in the absence of the Commonwealth stick or, or carrot, which is actually there to provide the financial incentives. And, and I fully appreciate that, that a lot of states did reform in the 1990s and 2000s because the Commonwealth was driving them and pressuring them. Uh, and they all look back now and say that was hard. And in the absence of being able to say we have to do this because the Commonwealth is driving us um, was an important lever for a lot of state governments to actually push through reform through their parliaments. Where do you think are the opportunities for that today? And I'm going to ask the same question in a slightly different way. This the huge and, and you know, it's the new normal of infrastructure investment levels. Um, it's enormous and unprecedented, but it is the new normal. And the OPEX liability that uh, states are variously going to be looking at over the, over the next 10 years is just as enormous unless they, unless they go and implement some of those reforms. Do you think there's an opportunity there for the Commonwealth to add a bit of a, well, I don't know if you'd call it a carrot or a stick, but attach a condition that requires some of those reforms that might help them with those OPEX challenges in the next in these this next round of infrastructure investment from the Commonwealth? Oh, look, I think there, there remains that. I think there's a number of states are going to have to, particularly given the fiscal circumstances governments are going to come out of COVID with, um, I think they're going to have to look closely at some of their operating costs of their systems. Um, the public and transport... Funding as well. And funding, and uh, and some of that may well come to have they got the market structures right? Is there a way in which they can, through a combination of opening up competition uh, or franchising out services or ultimately even uh, selling some of those services that they're currently operating, uh, are going to have to be on the table, I think, because the reality is um, the growth in demand. Now, public transport demand is obviously down considerably now through this period we're living through. But I think that it will come back. Our cities will continue to grow and we're going to have to look at some of our models. Um, and there's a whole new generation of transport systems emerging uh, as well as what's happening digitally in terms of our cities. Um, you only have to see the, the growing interest in unmanned aerial vehicles, the, the growing linkage, the digital linkages are now taking place which facilitate all that to see that there's new markets emerging. And you've got to get those market structures right quite early. Um, and so all of those things, I think, do lend themselves to a re-examination of, uh, and, and I think all governments are going to have to look at public transport in the wake of what's what we're now living through, because the, the business model that we went into COVID with was not sustainable and certainly not going to be sustainable beyond COVID. So will they do it, though? I don't know whether they'll do it, but I think it's, it's one of those things that um, until you do the diagnosis... Um, and you actually run the prescriptions past people. You don't. You don't know. And I think I don't know whether they'll do it, but I think you've got to ask. I think it should be done. Yeah, Mike. The um, it's a nice segue. The bits you spoke about there around the the digital piece and the changing nature of demand. Where a few months ago demand was for um, public transport seats and capacity, and now the demand is for internet bandwidth, so that we can do things like this um, digitally rather than. Um, than face-to-face. -face. Um, the latter part of your career, of course, was running the communications 
uh, department. Sorry, I should say the latter part of your career to date. Exactly. Running the communication department and 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 some of your some of your non-exec roles now are in the communication space. I wonder if um before we get into the the weeds on it, I wonder if you could just reflect for a moment on whether or not anything that's happening now in a the knowledge economy would have been even remotely possible five years ago given or ten years ago given the the state of Australia's telecommunications infrastructure then versus now. No, look, I, you know, in my view, uh, if we hadn't have invested in the NBN uh, and if the telcos hadn't built the mobile broadband networks they have, then all of us and just about everyone who works in white-collar, uh, clerical, retail, professional services would be on JobKeeper. Um, mm-hmm. That's the reality um, because the whole economy would have shut. We mightn't have shut for as long, but we all would have been uh, effectively, as we saw around Easter this year, um, Australia would have been in lockdown and all of us would have been, the whole economy would be on JobKeeper. So I, I'm firmly of the view that that digital investment, both in the infrastructure but also obviously packages, you know, like the software developers have developed around the infrastructure, like the Zooms and the Teams and all of those various communications forms, have made the huge difference that we've been able to continue to operate. And it will be one of the factors, and I'm an optimist um, and as I keep saying, but you've got to be having spent 33 years in public policy. But um, I'm an optimist that we will come out of this COVID period faster uh, than a lot of places because we are better digitally connected. We won't come out as fast as some countries. Is there anything you need to disclose there, Mike? No, about- I should I should disclose that I am the uh, I am the chair of a small uh, small Japanese telecommunications company called NEC, which yeah. is. Uh, been around for about 100 years and 50 years in Australia and it's a very good company. But setting that aside, <laughs> um, uh, no, the, the reality is that we will come out of COVID faster and in better shape than a lot of countries and certainly better than we would have done five years ago or 10 years ago because of our digital investment. The challenge for us now is the next generation of investment, um, making sure that NBN and the 5G networks actually invest in the next generation is actually going to be the critical enablers for the economy in the same way that, uh, you know, aviation and public transport have driven so much uh, economic growth and change and social growth uh, over the last two decades. So talk us through the market structure that will allow that to happen. Once I'm cognizant of, you know, we, we had to build the MBN because to some extent the way that we structured the sale, we or Australia structured the sale of Telstra as a vertically integrated monopoly wasn't conducive to the 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 type of build out uh, and investment that was required what have we got the structure right now or is more na- more needed i think the structure is better um there's no doubt I, I i think you know telstra themselves would admit that they didn't handle the process well um and the decision to i think everyone in many ways regrets the decision to have to build the nbn but we did and thank goodness we did um because it has enabled a level of competition in fixed line, which would not have otherwise happened. And it's let, it's raised a level of investment, both public and private, which had to happen. The governance going forward, though, is going to be quite critical. Again, a bit like rail, uh, the returns on NBN to get the broader economic benefits are going to be lower than what the private sector would want if it's going to continue to invest in, in high-quality fibre and upgrades to the to the network. So there's a really big question for government in the next few years, um, Commonwealth predominantly, um, and state in terms of planning laws. 
who who is a bit like rail who is going to what's the market going to look like that sits above the network how do you get the right incentive structures for network operators to build the mobile capacity we want in 5g and subsequent g's and just as importantly how do you continue to invest in the fixed line network which really is the core and the backbone of all of the mobile networks people forget that in the absence of the nbn network there would be no mobile networks because they, the fibre is actually connecting a lot of that and NBN has built the missing links of all of that fibre network, which gives us the mobile coverage. So it's a, they're, they're good questions, Mike. If, if, if Mike Murdoch was king for a day, what would be the answer? I think, I think the Australian government has to put more equity uh, and, and allow NBN to borrow, as they've already done. NBN's recently done a $6 billion capital raising uh, on the on the debt market. Um, I think they're going to continue to need to run that as a government business for a while longer and go back and examine uh, but build a, a much more open and transparent and longer-term investment strategy, which is known to everyone, upgrade the system. When, when I started in the communication department a couple of years ago, the Bureau of Communications Economics still estimated that the average Australian household needed a, a, a line speed of around 18 to 26 megabits per second. Um, three months ago, they revised that report and saying that most average, most households by 2030s need 54 megabits per second. Um, we our digital utilisation is doubling every year. Um, so the reality is we have to invest, and we're going. And I think there's no there's no alternative at the moment given the returns available to the NBN as we and importantly as we start to see the the telcos roll out their 5G networks the government needs a a 10 year investment strategy for NBN and I think Stephen Rue and NBN's got that and the government's going to have to find the means of providing the capital either through equity or enabling the company to to raise funds uh, and the and the government's going to have to work out a pricing strategy around NBN which is more sustainable and it's going to, and, in, and in doing all of that, it's going to have to go back and, and effectively reinvest and, and, and overbuild some of the network that's been built to now and upgrade it um, because the, the reality is we need it. On the bandwidth thing, I, I remember having a conversation with Inyaki Barretta, um Vodafone TPG, and he, he, was saying, he was talking about that, that additional bandwidth and some of those numbers on what's required. And then he reflected on it and said, but most of that additional bandwidth is being taken by Netflix, YouTube, and and other sort of higher definition services, and the lower latency is really important for gamers, but not many other people. Um, is fifty four megabits per second just sort of nice to have? And is there a limit on how HD you can get something? Um, look, it's it's more than an, I think. What COVID is showing is it's more than it's nice to have. Um, most Australian households came to realise somewhere about March or April that their digital connectivity was more than entertainment. It was about how they did homeschooling. It was about how they did their shopping. It's how they connected to their family and friends. And it's, and then they suddenly and then we suddenly discovered we were working from home. And and uh, so it's more than that. And I think that 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 experience has shown us that we do need to invest. And it's shown us two things. One is um, thank goodness we had the capacity to be able to do that quickly. Um, secondly, it's also shown us that some parts of Australia don't have that capacity they already need. They don't. It's there's still parts of Australia that, that are struggling to get 25 meg um, through fixed wireless. Um, that has to be upgraded. You can't create a digital divide 
uh, in this country if we're going to have the have so much more of our business moving digital, which is what's happening. Um, you only have to see one of the big structural changes. What's five G's role in that, Mike? And and I'm conscious that you're you know you might with your NEC hat on, it might be somewhat difficult to answer that question, but is 5G a complement to the NBN's business model? Is 5G going to fill some of those holes or is 5G going to challenge the business model? I think it'll do all three things. Um, one, for a lot of people, it'll be an alternative uh, model um, because it'll provide for them the mobility they want and it'll provide the services in areas which for which um, their NBN fixed line doesn't give them that capacity. So for some people, depending on how, how wide the coverage of 5G is, um, but the nature of 5G and the investment required means that it will, it will be predominantly in some, uh, you know, heavily dense areas which, which are more affluent and able to pay the cost of 5G. And those are the areas that are supposed to uh, be responsible for a lot of the revenue. They're the most profitable areas for NBN as well. They are, that's right, and, and they're tapping those. But the, the question for all of that is NBN has a responsibility to provide digital connectivity to a certain standard to the whole nation. You know, we're the first country in the world that has set a, a 25 meg requirement for every household and every business, and that'll, that, that'll go up. You know, you've you got to remember that for all of the criticism, some of it justified about how we got to where we are on the NBN, the reality is not only have we shown we need it, had we not made that decision to be the first continent that's wired up, we would have found significant parts of Australia who wouldn't have been able to work from home, who wouldn't have been able to do home learning at a time when they needed it in a crisis. And also the way in which business uh, is changing its its marketing delivery models and the way in which retail is shifting, we will see more and more people uh, shifting their business models to going digital. That only the, most Australians will do that seamlessly because they're living in urban areas. But if you're on the outer metropolitan fringes or you're in regional Australia, we need to wire them up as well. We can't create a digital divide. So that's a long-winded way of saying, in my view, the NBN as a social network, an economic network is going to be important. And 5G will complement that in some areas. It will exceed NBN's capability in other areas. And in other areas, it won't go there. And NBN will be the only provider of, uh, of a broadband capability. But so what does that mean for the intention to, sorry, Adrian, but what, what does that mean for the intention to privatise it? I, I mean, I, I agree with you. It is a it is an absolute social need in, in a whole bunch of areas that can't necessarily be provided commercially. Um, but if, if 5G is going to be operating in the areas that are the, supposed to be the NBN's most profitable, is there any chance that it can be privatised? Oh look, there, there will be buyers, and and look, the, the reality is NBN is a is a very well run company, and there would be no shortage of investors who'd be looking to do to buy into NBN. Probably not at the price some in government would like, but the reality is it's going to be a trade off. It's going to be one of those big public co- policy decisions. When do you sell NBN? Who do you sell it to? And the mistake that we that was made with Telstra, which shouldn't be repeated, is that you have to set performance expectations and an investment pathway for the buyers. Don't come in. Don't come in after you've sold the asset and tell someone like the board of Telstra that we want you to upgrade to this technology, when they they didn't buy the business on that basis. You've got to set those expectations early. So you know the Australian government has got to set up a, the big challenge with NBN. As I said, come back to my earlier comments, the success of privatising airports wasn't the sale; it was the regulatory structure which sits over the top of it. Similarly, with NBN, will be the same. Getting the performance expectations and the investment pathway 
right up front, even if that means a low, very much lower sale value, because this is going to be such a critical backbone for this coming century in terms of Australia's economic development, let alone our social connectivity. So my view for what it's worth as a private citizen um, these days is, um, which probably not too different to the advice I was giving when I wasn't a private citizen, um, which may account for why I'm no longer there. But you know, <laughs> my view is that um, my my view is that there will be at the right time to sell NBN uh, because you, to, the government cannot continue to find the capital for the expansion. But to, before you get there, work out exactly what. Don't repeat the mistakes of the past. Work out your regulatory structures. Work out your pricing structures. Work out what's your investment pathway you want for this entity with with the whole range of industry players, and then you take it to market once you've got all that sorted. That that means it's a longer process than I think some would imagine. But that's where we're going to get the best return for the for the you know somewhat fifty billion dollars already or so of our great great kids' money we've spent so far on the NBN. Mike, there's a few different threads in your career that come together through MBN because we we spoke about um, the 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 work around airports, the work around freight, and now you've spoken about MBN uh, or, or just the the uh, accelerating digital nature of business. And um, I don't know if your house is the same as mine, but there's barely a day goes by when there's not a package turning up um, that's come through a. a, a, a an online purchase and a, and a and a freight system to the front door. Do you think that we we might find because of that shift to digital that actually our freight systems, uh, air freight, land freight, etc., just simply can't aren't yet well placed to to keep up with that that shift? I think the freight networks are remarkably handling it okay. I mean, some clearly Australia Post, which has seen an almost exponential growth in its parcel business, is is struggled. Not just because of COVID, but simply to get the get the redesign of its business. You know, Australia Post is essentially a, a very good parcels business, which also has an obligation to deliver letters every day, um, which is where it loses money. But the network was designed around letters, so it's got a fundamental business redesign to take place. But the freight companies are are working through this, and 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 we're we're about to see the next generation of this. And whether it's drone deliveries or or quite different arrangements around freight deliveries, that'll happen. Um, the disconnects are really again around some of the bigger logistics pieces. It's the it's logistics centres. It's still some of those regulatory issues about getting the rail and air freight and road network uh, restrictions lifted. Um, they, they're still there. Um, the reality that you know Sydney when Western Sydney Airport opens, uh, it will make a dramatic change to our air freight system because at the moment the the air freight market shuts down at night down the east coast. Um, um, Brisbane and Melbourne operate 24-7, Sydney doesn't. When you've got 40% of the national GDP sitting in the Sydney Basin and you can't move a lot of freight at night, it shuts down your whole system. At the moment, what's happening is a lot of that freight is operating in different... It's had to operate in different times of the day in less optimal solutions. Um, but then you get the, the, the curfews over trucks and trains as well taking place in urban areas. So you've got a whole range, and they're not illegitimate concerns by the community, but it changes your ability to respond to market changes and to get the, the dynamics of the industry. Some of that, that's the next generation of regulatory change, and some of that will come through new technology as it will through through um, uh, looking at areas such as delivery models. Um, but, it, but it comes with disruption as well. So just on the... the um... Uh, uh, Oz Post, Australia Post. Um, we got a notification through the letterbox a couple of weeks ago saying that um, we'll now, and I think until 
uh, September next year, we'll be having deliveries only every other day of of letters, um, so that, that so that Australia Post can reorient resources towards parcels. And um, I don't care. That's great. I mean, there's there's no one ever sends me anything through the post that's time critical. If if it's time critical, it comes via email these days. So it's absolutely appropriate that change should change. But it took COVID for to to accelerate and and, and cause a a reason or an excuse for Australia Post to take what I think would have been seen as a really big controversial step in the past. Um, my flow on question from that soliloquy is what other reforms should, what, what other, what other reforms can COVID be used to accelerate that, that should have happened anyway across all of the areas of your interest? And that's an excellent bow, by the way, Adrian. Drawing the <laughs> Came back to our earlier conversation. I think COVID will force us to relook at some of the the public transport models and pricing, and things like transport pricing will come back into uh, into having to be considered. Um, you know, we've all spent lots of hours arguing the merits of of things like proper road pricing. Um, the reality is, there's no easy time to do it. Um, but there, there, there is a time to do it, um, and I think those make those challenge, the times ahead uh, as we come out of COVID probably is the right time to go back and look at some of those dynamics. Can we come up with smarter models? The digital connectivity now enables us to to do pricing in a way which we we wouldn't have thought of even five years ago. Most Australians are doing it in every other part of their lives, and somehow in transport we don't seem to be able to to come to that mechanism, even though. As we all know, most Australians would be better off with a direct charging regime on motoring than they would in the current system where they're paying large upfront registration and then low variable costs or, or fuel excise. How do we do that, Mike? We, we've, this, is, this, this show has more or less become the land tax and road pricing show. We, we've discussed that on every episode and we always, it's, it's, uh, it's always, everyone knows and everyone agrees that's what we need to do. What's the, what's the implementation pathway? How do we do it? Look, I think that, um, some of the work and you know the IPA and others have done is is already highlighted. You start with some of the segments of the market we're transitioning to. Um, there's no point trying to ask you know someone who lives in regional Australia who drives long distances you know in country Australia to start paying a road user charge at the moment. But let's start with the EVs. Let's start with the vehicles that aren't paying fuel tax. Modest as they are at the moment, start to charge them on a per per kilometre basis or or a time distance model, start to introduce those at those at those points right up front. When you buy the EV, when you buy the vehicle, here is your pricing structure. You're not going to be you're going to be charged a very notional, you know, ten dollar registration charge and here's what you're going to pay per kilometre. Suddenly the dynamics change because at the moment if you're buying an EV, you're paying, depending on which jurisdiction you're in, you can be paying four to six hundred dollars per you know, upfront in registration. Given the distances travelled, the dynamics may actually be in their favour if they're actually paying a per kilometre charge. So there's some better, but what you're doing is starting to institute. The reality is we are going to see more alternative powered vehicles. Start the transition now and then come back through other mechanisms to existing motorists and be saying, well, we can actually change this fundamentally for you, reduce the upfront cost, change it to this, and most motorists will be better off. The big risk, of course, is government revenue um, through fuel excise, but the reality is you've got to start to make those some of those market structural changes to actually get the efficiencies and also start to influence your demand patterns in a way that in the long term you will. So I think that's, that's where I'd be starting and that's where a lot of the, the thinking has gone. For a long time, the discussion was around heavy vehicles being that kind of wedge to 
through which to introduce um, any kind of road price? Is that is that ship sailed? Um, no, I think it's still there. The, the, what we were trying to do when I was involved was to to give the heavy vehicle industry an incentive through additional weights and access, which would have, you know, in their view, given them something for moving to a different funding model um, because they could actually see. Um, in, the, in that situation, where that's really founded is not so much been the resistance of the industry to pay a per kilometre charge. It's actually been the willingness of state jurisdictions to actually give them access to higher mass and access to a greater road network because of limitations on the infrastructure. And ultimately, um, heavy vehicle charging is really dependent on where the funds go. If, if it's being raised by the Commonwealth through uh, mass distance charging, how do you get it back to the road owner, who in a lot of cases is local government, to spend back on the roads? That conundrum was never settled and hasn't been to date, but that's the missing piece. Road pricing ultimately is going to require a Commonwealth state financial deal. For the electric vehicle proposal that we've put forward, we, we've sort of said there's three pathways, but the most likely is actually that one or more states acting together without the Commonwealth because actually they have all the levers and if you try and get the Commonwealth involved, um, whilst that might be nice from a national consistency perspective, it, it means you have to have an agreement of the all rather than um, the, the sort of one or two who are prepared to go. Do you think there does there have to be a national approach or a state-federal relationship on it? If you try and do on, on traditional powered vehicles that are raising fuel tax, yes, you'll need the Commonwealth. At the point you're working with the EVs, no, you don't. It can be done on a on a urban or a jurisdiction basis, quite really, because the levers there through registration and and licensing are with the state governments. You're absolutely right. Um, the only the only thing that states would want to work together on is is registration to make sure that if vehicles are coming into a jurisdiction, that they're being captured on data systems. So, but that can be done at jurisdiction with the Commonwealth. But once you go into anything which involves uh, fuel tax vehicles, which are currently required to pay fuel tax, then you're going to need the Commonwealth. And ultimately, if it involves uh, the federation having to come together to share revenue um, because small jurisdictions just won't be raising enough and you get redistribution mechanisms, then you need the Commonwealth. Large states, for all their generosity, have not all been that good about sharing their uh, their uh, revenue with smaller jurisdictions often. I was hoping to see if you could uh, look in your crystal ball now that you're not, you're outside the tent now, you're not, you're, you're not, uh, you're not in government. Who's going to be the first government you reckon that might implement something like this? I think it would be, and, uh, look, I think it will be a, one of either New South Wales or Victoria um, will be the jurisdictions that, that around uh, EVs uh, and, um, and non-fossil fuel powered vehicles will probably be the ones who'll do it um, because they're, they're also trying to, I think, uh, They've got agendas around, particularly if you look at some of the targets they've got for um, uh, sustainability, then they're going to need to go into this area and they're going to need to generate the funding with different models um, because we are going to see an uptake of new generation vehicles. It's happening globally. Um, and uh, we, we, we just, I think it'll be one of those two jurisdictions will probably lead. Queensland's done a lot of thinking on it. Um, and I've got to say to their great credit, but I just don't know whether the the politics of Queensland and the, and the nature of the regional politics in Queensland will probably enable the Queensland government to do it. But uh, I think Melbourne and Sydney are the, probably the two drivers. Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, so I think I agree. I, I think plus the ACT. Um, but I also think that um, I, I'm probably more optimistic on the politics in somewhere like Queensland because the reality is electric vehicle uptake will be a largely urban 
process to begin with just because of um, range anxiety and other things. So I, I think seeing other jurisdictions move first, I think you could see quick followers around the country because they will see the politics are actually quite good when you're talking about um, equalising for Tesla drivers and, and others not paying uh, fuel excise. I, I'm, I think I'm probably optimistic on that front. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I, I would be as well. I think that at the moment the, the the pricing of oil globally is probably not working in the favour of it. But but the reality is, so this process may take longer than even optimists like me think, but it will happen. I, I, I've got no doubt of it because inherently it's it's going to have to there's going to be have to be revenue generation to pay for the road networks and the transport systems. And we're going to have to move to these types of models. The very fact that you know, I, there's, there's, you know, I carry around a small computer in my pocket every day called my phone, which enables people to charge me for a whole range of things. And increasingly, we're going to move into more contactless travel and contactless access systems with charging done automatically. Um, it, it's going to happen. And the question is getting that design right now um, by one of those East Coast jurisdictions. Moving on from road pricing, because road pricing absolutely is uh, something that, that uh, as we've discussed, it's inevitable. It, ha- it has to happen. We just have to figure out how. Are there other key um, reforms that you either wish you could have uh, overseen over your time or, or think uh, now is the time for them? Um, look, I think there's going to be a whole range of uh, things that will change and which will emerge as reform areas themselves coming out of what we now see is the, the you know there is there is a fundamental restructuring of the economy and and the country taking place um, COVID has really ex- accelerated a lot of trends and as well as being a dramatic shock um, I think the shape of our cities and the future of work are going to lead to a whole range of new areas particularly re as we've discussed re-examining the whole notion of travel for work um, the way in which our transport systems have been geared to moving relatively high volumes in peak hours in and out of CBDs or business areas is changing and will continue to change. Um, so that's going to. So I think where that comes to, I think, is a whole range of new thinking around planning and city shaping, uh, the nature of work and home and where they're located and how that operates. Um, we're seeing quite different shifts uh, already emerging on supply chains and confidence and trust in supply chains. Um, and I think we'll start to see that accelerate, um, and partly geopolitical with what's happening in, in parts of the world. But also COVID has been a, uh, an opportunity for some manufacturers uh, and a shock for a lot of people about what we do and don't make in parts of the world and how supply, how, how supply chains can be disrupted and how quickly and what the cost is. So I think all of those things will come into play. They're not reform areas per se, but they're, they're going to accentuate areas of thinking which we've, we have to have done. And the other one that I think will, will also be the case is um, we've covered digital and how important that digital investment is going to be, but also this whole notion of uh, what is a safe environment. I think we're going to see much more digital access systems, uh, systems which enable people to operate digitally, uh, in a safe, to know who's around them, what's happening. I think those systems. And finally, I think this whole notion of risk and investment um, you know, investors now have had a, a demand shock. Um, what does that mean for investor appetite for uh, assets, in, in particularly in transport and infrastructure, which are effectively have got um, you know uh, patronage risk to them? And you know, and you know, you can certainly see if I was in the if in the investment community, I'd be looking for more and more uh, assets that are regulated assets, uh, as opposed to assets that have uh, a great deal of patronage risk. Um, for those very reasons. So th- 
there there are things that have always we've been worried about, but I think coming out of COVID and and what will be you know unfortunately probably a prolonged economic downturn for many parts of the world and hopefully not for us, but um, you know is probably a re-examination of some of those fundamentals uh, and probably an acceleration of a structural shift in employment. Um, you know we we've just seen two of our largest employment sectors and two of our largest national income earners uh, decimated, you know, education and aviation and tourism and retail are going through a crisis which no one could have imagined um, uh, six months ago, which has accelerated a whole range of structural problems. And for an industry like tourism and aviation, um, when is the return point um, for investors? I haven't answered your question well in terms of reform areas, but what I'm saying is there's a whole range of areas of change that are happening rapidly. And from those, we need to work out where we need to change our current policy settings to actually reflect that. Just as the when I started my career, the people who were thinking about this stuff um, had, a, had a view of where we needed to go to, which was about dealing with the problems we saw as we came out of the 70s and 80s. We have to do the same level of thinking and planning for a new environment based on what we now see as the scenarios playing out, which are just like it was in the 70s and 80s, does involve a structural shift out of certain sectors and uh, investment and new investment patterns. And I think that's in many ways the exciting part of the the, the picture and and pretty frightening as, as as all periods of economic restructuring are. Mike, we've asked all of our guests on this podcast the same question to close. Uh, which is what's your favourite type of infrastructure and why? Oh, look, I, 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 I'll go back to my, where I started um, my public career, I, I, airports. Um, I just, I just, uh, I've always found them fascinating. Uh, and uh, while I, I always, I've always been a big fan. As a kid, I spent living in the country in New South Wales. I used to love the train. Catching the train to Sydney was as exciting as life ever got. But I like airports. I think that. Um, uh, they really are the, the meeting places for people. And um, I, li- I like the technology. I like the industry. So is it airports in operation or airports in construction or? Oh, both. I, I like them. Um, but operations, I, I think the um, it, one of the saddest things at the moment is to uh, to go out to past Sydney Airport and, and see an airport running with, I think, on you know, on their busy hour these days, about five or six aircraft an hour, which is probably great for, people who live near the flight path, but it's a tragedy when you think about the, the social dislocation and economic loss um, that uh, when you've got a continent like ours, aviation uh, remains the most efficient way. And, and if you're like me and grew up in an environment where I never never got to step onto an aeroplane until I started work um, because it was so expensive, um, the reality is to have seen an industry go from a situation where very few people flew uh, because it was a very expensive industry, to a situation where most of our kids these days have flown from a very young age and have been able to experience the world and connect in ways which I could never have imagined growing up. Uh, that, that for me, will always be uh, one of the, the great things I've seen in my life and uh, been fortunate to be part of is the growth of that industry. Mark, I think that's a, um, a great note to finish on where we've, we've touched the 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 beginning and end of um, of your time in the public service being aviation and it being your favourite type of infrastructure as well. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. That's it for today. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a rating or comment on LinkedIn. If you have any guest suggestions, then feel free to send those through. We've certainly appreciated the messages we've been receiving so far. 
This episode was recorded and edited by Adam Stevens from TAG, PwC Australia's internal media agency. Research was conducted by Linda Bierschen, Brendan Pierce, and Michael Blair. Thank you.